What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. There. Welcome to episode 162 of Love That Album. It's the first proper show back since I've come back from hiatus. I did do an end of 2022 favorite first time listens for the year, but this is the first proper show in which I talk with another human being about an album that we love because that really is what this show is all about. I am so thrilled to welcome back to the show a guy who has not been on the program in seven years. And I've been wanting an excuse to have him back. And we had the perfect excuse. His name is Charlie Mahoney. He's from the Stinking Paws family of podcasts. Welcome back to the show, Charlie. Thanks very much, Boris. How are you? Uh, Look, all the better for having your presence. It's wonderful. Now, the last time you were here, we had you and your Stinking Paws co-host, Scott Phipps, we were talking about Randy Newman's album, Sail Away. I mean, I haven't listened back to the show since we recorded it, but... Well, I, I did listen back to it, actually, a couple of years ago, maybe, because I'm a rampant narcissist. Um, <laughs> and it was superb. It was absolutely outstanding, I have to say. <laughs> so for people out there who may not have listened to that episode and are not familiar with Stinking Paws and its associated shows, I mean, I think Scott's really developed an empire, but uh, the yes. two main flagships for me are uh, Stinking Paws and Real Britannia. Give a little bit of a background to uh, the listeners out there as to uh, what these shows are about. Well, the Stinking Paws is very much, not necessarily intentionally so, but it's it's sort of developed into an almost classic film podcast. We don't 
tend to look at much contemporary stuff. We, there have been exceptions to the rule, uh, but generally speaking, when it started, it was almost like Scott's way of educating me into the glaring omissions I had in terms of vintage cinema. And we quickly established that we had certain eras that we really, really enjoyed more than others. For me, it was a real discovery that my favourite era was sort of like that golden age of new Hollywood in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we often take turns to choose films. We know have Paul joining us as well, who... Uh, we've both known for, for many years now. But when it tends to be my turn to, to pick a film, I tend to try and look for stuff from the 70s that I may not have seen before or any of the sort of glaring emissions. Scott tends to be a bit more, I think, original golden age of Hollywood, largely because he is an old man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, but um, he's, no, so in, <laughs> yeah, he's so into his kind of 30s and 40s cinema you know his heroes are people like the great Jimmy Stewart he's so infatuated by that era in the way that I am the 70s and I think it makes a nice compliment there are no real fixed rules as to what films we choose but it, we tend to find that we look at the real heavy hitters we, we, we don't go very niche on the stinking course um, and Real Britannia is a project that Scott started with another member of the stinking course family uh, Tony and they began looking at really really specific kind of classic British stuff, things like The Plank. I'm sure they've done Confessions of a Window Cleaner at some point. That wouldn't surprise <laughs> well, me whatsoever. I don't think they have, but he'll have to at some stage. I mean, if he's doing carry-on films, then exactly. what's, the, what's the next step? You know, 70s, once uh, things became a lot more liberated, then really <laughs> the Confessions films, Confessions of a Taxi Driver, Confessions of a Window Cleaner... And you know, at some stage, he's probably going to have to do the film versions of Love Thy Neighbour or Are You Being Served? You know, the TV extrapolations out into the cinema. And the Love Thy Neighbour thing will be really interesting in an age where even irony may not be taken on board. I mean, I think the thing with Love Thy Neighbour was always that it was actually the racist who ended up being the butt of the joke. Exactly. But I think there isn't even really any space for that kind of Hmm. analysis anymore. So I think it might be a bit problematic to look at something like that. But I don't think Scott will shirk away from things like that, which is really great. I think at one stage he did say that throughout the life of the podcast, he wanted to tackle every British film ever made. There you go. The wonderful thing about Real Britannia, I mean, as you say, with Stinking Paws, you guys do like to tackle a lot of the heavy hitters. But with Real Britannia, I mean, look, certainly for myself, who didn't necessarily grow up with seeing the same number of British films that you gents might have on BBC or or ITV or the like. There's a lot of films which I'm thinking, I haven't heard of that one, haven't heard of that one. And a lot of them are quite old films. I find a lot of that fascinating. And I mean, like I think I might never get round to watching that film, but it's fascinating to hear Scott and Stephen really go. And they, yes, Stephen's an equal to Scott in terms of his knowledge of that era, that the older era of uh, British cinema. So um, full credit to him. You've gone and appeared on that show a few times as well, where Stephen wasn't available. We've made the foray into Real Britannia a few times. We tend to find that there's less British content on the stinking boards now. As a result, it seems a shame to muddle the two, really, when there's already this kind of podcast in the stable that deals exclusively with that kind of thing. But um, Scott also hosts uh, the Talking Pictures TV podcast, which is very much related to the kind of Real Britannia thing. And he has uh, Rainbow Valley as well, which is all about 1960s culture, which is a bit of an obsession of his. And he 
does a sterling job if I may say so. That's very well produced. He uh, does a lot of great research and he really wants to make that a documentary for the ages. We've actually spoken about maybe working together on an episode of that very much related to something that we may be talking about later on. I'll just say watch this space. Okay, excellent. All right, so if people want to go out there and find the podcasts, just go look for Stinking Paws, and that's P-A-U-S-E, Stinking Paws. I should explain that it's a reference to the planet of the apes, and it was totally Scott's brainchild, that name. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! I should explain what you are on this program. It's called Love That Album, folks. What you are on this program to talk about, it's episode 162. And I guess, well, people, if they've downloaded it, they already know. But to be formal about it, we're going to be talking about the 1985 album from Pete Townsend called White City. This is the first album that he recorded after The Who had broken up. So he'd done some solo albums whilst within The Who. And we'll get to talking a little bit about that. But this is the first post who album so there's a sense of freedom about this record produced by chris thomas we'll be back in a couple of moments to talk about that and about the who and about all sorts of things about this period of time but first what will happen is joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll come back to talk about all things pete townsend the who housing estates and all sorts of analogies and metaphors that I'm not sure if they really work. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com where you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. You're listening to episode 162 of Love That Album, part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcast. My gratitude to them for allowing me to play in their sandbox. And my special guest this time around is the wonderful Charlie Mahoney of the Stinking Paws Podcast. And we're here to talk about Pete Townsend and his album, White City. Charlie, I know that you're particularly passionate about The Who, as I am, and we've done a couple of Who episodes on the podcast in the past, and I wasn't sure that I'd ever return to The Who for the show because I want to get a broad variety of musicians and albums across the spectrum, but we thought, well, Pete Townsend, he went into a different place, so I guess it's fair enough to do one more show that's Townsend-related. What was your gateway into The Who? Did you, in fact, discover The Who before you discovered Townsend's solo work? Or had you discovered, say, this album or Empty Glass and then went back to The Who? What's your introduction to this world of music? It very much was a combination of the fact that my dad is a massive fan of The Who. Growing up in London in the 60s 
and the 70s, um, it, they were sort of ideal for the kind of music that he liked and the, the working class culture that he was from. He went to some of the more significant gigs that they did in London, like at the Valley, the Oval, which is just around the corner from where he grew up. So he was already very passionate about them and I did inherit a lot of my dad's musical taste. Sorry to interrupt, so you say he went to those places, so what era was that? Was that like in the 60s still? They would have both been in the mid-70s because he was born in the mid-50s. He would have been aware but probably slightly too young to go and see them in their initial sort of gold hall my generation era. I'd love to meet someone who said, yep, I saw them at the Goldhawk, saw them at the Station Hotel, like while there was still Maximum R&B doing those early pop singles. It would have been sensational. But anyway, yeah, no, that's still pretty amazing that, that your dad did get to see them in the 70s. I was still with Moon. Uh, Moon was very much his idol when he was growing up. Fortunately, it didn't manifest itself ending up like Moon. Was your dad a drummer? Not remotely, but I think he was intoxicated by the kind of volatile kind of outlandish nature of him I, I can imagine most people being attracted to that at the time just something so unique but it gravitated more towards the extracurricular activities of Moon than the actual musical ones so your, your dad took horse tranquilizers on you know on the weekend <laughs> And, and had to get someone to replace him on stage, yeah. Right, right, um, right. But um, he would have seen them in the sort of post sort of Who's Next Quadrophenia era, I guess. Right. I, I know he loved Tommy and the previous albums, but, but yeah, that was the age when he was able to see them. But there's also another kind of strand to it in that, obviously, there was a massive Britpop movement in the mid-90s when I was about eight, nine, ten. Subsequently, there was a kind of mini extension of the mod thing, particularly with people like Paul Weller when he was releasing albums like Stanley Road and things like that. I'm pretty sure I remember them re-releasing Quadrophenia in the mid-90s in British cinemas. And I even think I remember you saying that you saw The Who perform Quadrophenia in the mid-90s at Hyde Park. Uh, that is correct. Yes, I did. Unfortunately, you know, way beyond Moon's era, but I did get to see them with Zach Starkey, who, as we'll discuss a little bit later, I think is probably the one drummer outside of Keith Moon who's done The Who justice. Oh, don't get me wrong, I, I like Kenny Jones as a drummer. I'm not going to shit on him like a lot of other Who fans might have done, but he wasn't necessarily right for The Who. And I put the same criticism for Simon Phillips, who is a superb drummer and perfect for Pete Townsend's solo band, but he was not the drummer for The Who. So uh, I think Zach Starkey just did a fantastic job, but sorry, I'm digressing. I don't often agree with what Watch Tultry has to say, but in his fairly recent autobiography, thank you, Mr. Kibblewhite, he mentions that, you know, obviously he had his, his personal problems with Kenny Jones, but he made a good point in that it, it was never the fact that Kenny Jones was a bad drummer, he was an exceptional drummer, but he was very metronomic when compared to Keith Moon, and that took something away, I guess. But yeah, so the kind of revival in curiosity about all things kind of mod in the 90s meant that Quadrophenia became quite a big thing again with a new generation, and uh, I ended up watching the film and I already liked The Who because, as I say, I'd inherited a lot of musical taste from my dad, but that just seemed to compound it, really. They were, without question, the first band that I ever really got into. So there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in it as well. And, yeah, I just think they're incredible. I think that the run of albums from the debut through to uh, Who By Numbers is outstanding. I'm not so keen on Who Are You. I think it's the first Who album that I think is really quite uneven and not very consistent. I, I don't mind face dances actually, but I think by that point the dynamics of the group had just changed so irrevocably. But yeah, yeah, just a huge fan of them, huge fan of Townsend. 
a songwriter, and, and I really enjoy the rock opera concept as well. So what is it about Townsend as a songwriter, do you think, that appeals to you? Is it the fact that he's a great storyteller? Do you like his forums for public confession? Because, like, basically, the who by numbers and to an extent who are you is him doing therapy but in a public forum absolutely well i actually think with without it sounding like a cop out um it's it's the layered nature that that he can do both of those at the same time mm-hmm. if one takes tommy as an example you've got this concept album or this rock opera that is at one point about a literally about a deaf dumb and blind child the fact that it's called tommy also kind of relates to the post-war kind of trauma you know and tommy being what british soldiers were called in the first world war you have the element of spirituality that he was going through in terms of like the teachings of Maya Barber. And then you also have, especially having read Who Am I, Townsend's autobiography, you have issues relating to themes of childhood trauma and abuse. That's like four or five different layers, but they all intersection as well at the same time. And I, I think that's really talented in the way that Townsend manages to combine all those different facets maybe even into one song or one theme. Uh, does that make kind of sense? Makes complete sense, yeah. As much as he's known for writing great melodies and, and The Who and his solo bands fleshing them out, certainly through his 80s recordings anyway, I think Townsend will, if, if you're going to say, right, well, is it Townsend the lyricist or Townsend the melodicist? I think probably what he'd be remembered for most, my impression anyway, is as a lyricist. And I, mm. he's given a lot of thought, you know, as you've gone and already sort of indicated there, we'll come back to that in the White City discussion, is about his devotion to the teachings of Mayor Barber. So inevitably, when someone's devoted to some sort of spirituality, then that's going to come out either well done or not well done in what it is that they have to say lyrically in their songs. But fortunately for Townsend, it always came out really well. He wasn't going to be explicitly writing, Mehababa teaches us this, Mehababa teaches us that. He was always able to find a way to bring the teachings into something, into a contemporary context that people who had no affiliation with those spiritual teachings could understand. The idea that Mehababa literally took a vow of silence. So that immediately relates to the character of Tommy. But it isn't the only reason as to why Tommy is deaf, dumb and blind. There were other aspects as well. I just find it so compelling that there are these different facets to it. I remember years ago reading Before I Get Old by Dave Marsh. In fact, that probably was the very first music biography, music-related book I ever read back in the 80s. And the thing that appealed to Townsend about Mayor Barber was that Mababa said, look, I'm taking a vow of silence. You don't have to. I've devoted my life to doing all these things to find my way of spirituality. You don't have to. I've just learnt some things. Here's what I've learnt. Try and be the best person you can be through as many of my teachings as you want to. But if you find that there are parts of your life that it's not practical to do everything that I've done, then don't do it. And that's what appealed to Tanzan. And it also allows me to take acid on the private jet. Yes, it, yeah, ex- yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, of course, unless it contradicts the core tenets, maybe Tanzan was a little bit loose with some of the rules. You always are And always will be You are everywhere In everything and beyond In the firmament above And in the... I'll 
just talk for a couple of minutes. I've probably spoken about this on previous Who-related podcasts about my discovery of all things Who, but I seem to have several things in my head, and I can't be 100% sure which was first, but I like to think that back in 79, possibly when The Kids Are All Right came out, that the soundtrack came out and I went down to my local record shop. The fellow who owned it, you know, because I was a regular, would often sort of have conversations with me and he'd say, so do you know the music of The Who? And I mean, I knew the name, obviously, because of Tommy, which I'd never seen up to that time, but didn't really know anything about their music. And he played me the opening cut on the album, which was the beginning of the film, their appearance on the Smothers Brothers show. At that time, they actually did two songs, I Can See For Miles, which isn't in the film. But then the second performance that they did on the show was My Generation, which is on the album. The album features Tommy Smothers' conversation with the band, which is pretty funny. And over here, the guy plays the sloppy drums. Follow the yellow brick road. What's your name? Keith. Keith? My friends call me Keith. You can call me John. Okay, John. I'm going to... Yeah. I just soon call you Roger. Uh, Roger from Oz. What's the, what's the next song you're going to do? My Generation. Your Generation? Yeah. Well, I can really identify with that because I really identify with these guys. I dig them. And this is... A, you know, you've got sloppy stage hands around there. And then even without seeing it, just listening to the record by the end where they're smashing their instruments up, it's insane, and I'm thinking, what the hell is this? I didn't get the album at the time, you know, it was just, I couldn't afford that sort of thing. But several years later, I go and order a copy of the album from an import record shop. And that's back in the days where you order a record and it takes a year to come in. Really, I'd forgotten I'd even ordered it. For any of you Melburnians, it was from Gaslight Records, the late lamented Gaslight Records. But I played that album over and over and over again. But I think somewhere, I'm not sure, if somewhere just before I got hold of that album, Face Dancers had come out. And like you, Charlie, I actually think that's a really good album. It doesn't sound like a moon era who album it, in fact to be honest with you it more sounds like what would have become a pete townsend solo album absolutely who are you is fairly sloppy and even the earlier albums maybe sloppy isn't the right word but they're ramshackle they're not precise and that's a good thing that's what we loved about the who but this sounds like with not just with kenny jones drumming but also and i'm not sure if i'm going to pronounce the name right but the producer bill zimzik it's spelled S-Z-Y-M-C-Z-Y-K. Anyway, but I think his production, as well as Kenny Jones' very precise drumming, plays a part in the crisp, clean sound that we get along on that record. But I think the closest that we get, funnily enough, to the old style Who sound are on the two John Entwistle songs, The Quiet One and You. So maybe Tanzan was deliberately going for a different style of songwriting on the album as well as a different style of performance. But yeah, The Quiet One and You sound sort of close to what we're expecting from a traditional Who song, certainly for what we expect from a traditional John Entwistle Who song. Drive, but you can't get near me I ain't 
talk a little bit about the solo work of each of the Who members. I want to ask you, Charlie, whether you've seen a film from the 1970s. It's a pretty much a cocaine-induced mess called All This in World War Two. I have to confess that I have not. Have you heard of it? I feel really ignorant, but I haven't, actually. No, no, no. That's it's good education. No, no, that's, that, that's fine. I, I like to think that probably a lot of people, unless they're diehard Beatles fanatics, probably don't remember this. But not only have I seen this, I saw this in the cinema, and as a, I think it was maybe about 11 years old, and thought, what the fuck have I just watched? This is a 20th century Fox film. And there must have been a lot of cocaine going on to get this approved. But basically, all this in World War II was basically a documentary, if you want to call it that, about World War II told through archival footage and old, what are they called, movie tone news clips. And it basically sort of told the story of World War II through these clips, but with a soundtrack of Beatles songs as covered by a range of artists like were Aerosmith on that possibly the Bee Gees so pre-Sergeant Pepper the Bee Gees already ruined a few Beatles songs you're probably thinking well what's the connection to the Who the connection is When I'm 64 as sung by Keith Moon When I get older losing my hair many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine, a birthday greeting bottle of wine? If I'd been out till quarter to three, would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? I think I've heard that somewhere. I think I've heard that. So before I knew anything about The Who, I didn't even know who this Keith Moon fellow was. And it was atrocious i gotta say on the other hand you listen to it and you think he's not taking it seriously he's not singing it like he's meaning for it to be wonderful he's, he's having a bit of fun with it but it's what keith, keith moon yeah keith moon yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah uh yeah that surprises me so yeah but so when when his album two sides of the moon came out i wasn't so keen to follow that up you know sort of thinking yeah i don't really need to listen to a keith moon solo album although in prep for this album i did listen to it on youtube i think and as long as you don't want to really take things too seriously it's actually a fun album it's not something that you'd keep returning to but it's a little bit of fun in the way that certain 1970s albums could be you know before everything had to be taken so desperately seriously Uh, and there's little bits of film clips online of him recording this album you see him sing in the studio and i don't even think he's playing the drums that much on the album but i'm trying to remember who it is that's actually playing drums for most of the album he really wanted to make singing his focus and on that album there's a version of the beatles song in my life there are places i remember all my life though some have changed some forever not for better some have gone and some remain which actually works due to uh, really yeah i was surprised it's played on the piano and there's a choir and overall it's just a fun pop album but that version i never thought i'd say this but it's it's actually in my life it's really quite charming in its way as done as sung by keith moon if you were going to ask me what beatles songs keith moon would cover 
you know, when I'm 64 would be right up there. Mm. Things like Octopus's Garden and Yellow Submarine in my life would be at the very bottom of songs I'd expect Keith <laughs> Moon well, there to you, tackle. Well, there you go. As soon as we finish recording this, you better go out and have a listen. And I will be including a little bit of audio under this. So uh, listeners don't have to search it out. I will provide it for them. The next who member with a solo career I just want to talk a little bit about is uh, Roger Daltrey have you listened to much of Roger's stuff? Uh, some of it yeah there's an album is it Ride a What Course or, or something yeah, like that yep yep that's that's I think maybe the second or third album that he did. I'm aware of the. I actually quite like the work, the solo work he did for McVicker. Much later, one I enjoyed the album he made with Wilco Johnson as well. Oh, fantastic album! Stand on what the towers burning at the break of day. Not typical of his solo career, but that's just him having a bit of fun with Wilco Johnson. That, yeah, that was a superb record. Great, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it was him going back and doing a rock record. Yeah. While he was doing his solo stuff in the 70s, he decided, no, I'm going to do some balladry. And he picks up on this new songwriter, this guy called Leo Sayer. <laughs> it's so strange, isn't it? And, well, like he was. Did you know Leo Say is a is an Australian nowadays? He lives here. I did not. I hadn't heard much from him in recent years, so it stands to reason that he would have emigrated. I don't really feel that's a fair trade for Nick Cave. I feel you've been shortchanged there. Do you wish you had the power? the first Roger Daltrey solo album uh, which was an album of mainly ballads and these were all written after he made friends with Leo Sayer and uh, like you Charlie I also had recently read Daltrey's autobiography Thank You Mr Kibblewhite and in it he was quite bitter against Kit Lambert the Who's manager who really wanted that solo album buried Daltrey just felt that he had to do something by himself, independent of The Who. You know, he still loved and was devoted to The Who, but he had to do something different, something for himself. And this is exactly what he wanted. And Kit Lambert thought, no, we're not going to allow that to be released. And you don't say that to Roger Daltrey. I kind of get it from Daltrey's perspective because he feels, despite the fact that he was the lead, the front man, he still feels very much an outsider when compared to Whistle Moon and Townsend in terms of, that, you know, he was, it's weird for a front man to be the kind of well-adjusted, well-behaved, teetotal one. <laughs> I can't think of any other band. If you're a fan of The Who, you did pay attention to Roger to an extent, but he was not the one who the journalists went to for comment. They went to Pete Townsend as a songwriter, or they, they'd look at Keith Moon because he was a zany one. They didn't really go that much, I don't think, to Roger for comment and of course i think once mick jagger once said about his solo albums he said why would i do an album that sounds like a rolling stones album but it's the same principle with daltrey doing an album of ballads because that's not what he does with the who and why wouldn't he do something different john entwistle on the other hand he put out i've only heard the one album smash your head against the wall
that's what I'm familiar with. Right. It's a great album. It's probably sort of like saying, right, well, I'm doing My Wife and Heaven and Hell but ramped up, you know, a whole lot more. Yeah. You know, it's like I want to do more of these sorts of songs, but I can't because all the albums are they're ninety percent Townsend's albums. So this is what I do. So that sort of made sense. I, I really enjoy it, but um, I've, I think it's also because I've always felt quite aggrieved on Ed Whistle's behalf. Obviously, I know Townsend is the chief songwriter of The Who, but I always felt that Ed Whistle was somewhat shortchanged with the amount of songs that were included on albums, particularly before Tommy. Obviously, you get Cousin Kevin and Fiddle About on Tommy, and even that is largely due to the fact that Townsend felt that he couldn't really confront the issues being discussed there based on his personal experience. And also, he didn't have that black sense of humour that John Entwistle yeah. had. I, mean, I think Daltrey said in the book that he thought that Entwistle had something of a nasty streak in real life. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that Cousin Kevin or Fiddle About are uh, an extension of that personality, if that's so? Yeah, and then you get My Wife, which appears on Who's Next. Right. He's kind of relegated completely from Quadrophenia, if I remember rightly, in terms of songwriting. You get a few horn arrangements. But then I think later on, I think with, as you say, not so much by numbers, but Who Are You and Face Dances, he's slightly more prominent in terms of his presence. But I always wonder if Ed Whistle ever feel, felt that aggrieved about his, his lack of inclusion. I remember reading in Before I Get Old where they said the only reason that everyone in the band wrote a song for their second album which was a quick, a, one. a quick one while he's away was because I think they were contractually bound to do it. You know, they'd gone and fought this long battle to make sure that Townsend would be the chief songwriter of the band. And then they all found that Adultery had to write something. Moon had to write something, which I think Entwistle might've helped him with. Not a great album. It does sound like one that was sort of quickly cobbled together. And I don't think anyone from the Who's particularly championing that one, but they went from you know the brilliance of, the power pop of my generation what a superb album that is to the the brilliant baroque feel i guess of uh, the who sell out which you know if push comes to shove i'm going to say is probably my favorite who album and ironically ironically it's not a very who sounding album we're digressing we're taking a long time to get to talking about White City. How can we be doing this, Charlie Mahoney? It was bound to happen. It was, it was bound to happen. That's what happens on this program. That's why. Let's talk a little bit about Townsend as a solo artist before we get to White City specifically. Do you recall what the first thing that you heard of Townsend as a solo artist was? It probably would have been as an individual track, uh, Let My Love Open the Door. something that you would be likely if you'd never heard anything of Townsend solo that would be the individual track you'd be most likely to hear and then obviously as I became more serious about my kind of love of the Who it turned out that their catalogue alone wasn't enough so I started to seek out the solo albums that he'd made sort of in a chronological order although the thing is uh, Who came first I would say that probably came out around the same time as Who's Next yeah I'm not sure I would consider it as a necessarily as a, a proper studio solo album because it tends to be more a bit like Odds and Sods sort of like demos and, and things that were left out or, or Townsend's own interpretation of a Who song 
then obviously you've got a really fantastic album with Ronnie Lane in 1977. I'm embarrassed to say I've never listened to that one. Rough Mitt, superb, superb. Um, but again, I wouldn't, I'd be loath to talk about that in the kind of collection of Townsend solo albums, not just because it features Ronnie Lane, but it's very much a collaborative effort in terms of its sound. It's not typical of Townsend. Some aspects are, but it's, it's very much a, uh, a joint effort. I believe Ronnie Lane was in quite bad financial times uh, when that album was released and in some respects Townsend did it almost as a favour to a friend but it, it doesn't show it doesn't show when you listen to it it sounds like a really fully fleshed credible piece of work and then obviously you get Empty Glass and then you have is it All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes which is Quite, quite the title. Uh, well, Townsend has since gone and said, how the fuck did I ever call the album that title? And then obviously, White City, I actually think I may have listened to before the previous album because it intrigued me, the, the title, like the fact that it included the term a novel. And also because I'm familiar with White City as an area. When my grandparents moved over from Ireland in the late 40s or early 50s, they actually moved to Shepherd's Bush. Oh, so wow. there's quite, there's quite a, a, a connection there. And it's generally an area of London that I know quite well through going to football matches and it's where the BBC used to be based as well. So, But yeah, so so I may have listened to it before Empty Glass and All, All the Best Cowboys, but yeah, there was something about that concept, about it being about a particular estate. I knew a novel in the title that really kind of piqued my interest. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't heard the following two, which is, I believe, Iron Man. And there was one last solo album. Psychoderelict. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with them, I'm afraid to say. I heard Iron Man. I might have even had a copy of the record of Iron Man when it came out. And there's actually, that might have been the first reunion of The Who, because they did a cover on that album of Fire, originally from The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Simon Phillips on drums and I thought oh no this isn't working it's way too technical I guess it would have been the same sort of time that they embarked on the reunion tour because I think they did an anniversary tour of Tommy in 89 so it makes sense that they probably would have made hay while the sun shines and said well let's collaborate on on a studio thing as well I didn't care much for that album but it's almost like Tanzen's ability to tell a narrative may have deserted him so Mm. I thought right well I'll just write the songs based on an existing narrative Ted Hughes. That, that's, yeah, Ted Hughes' book, The Iron Man. And uh, musically, I could take it or leave it. And the same goes for Psychoderelict. Once again, Psychoderelict is not particularly a favourite album of mine. I'm not sure whether it's anyone's favourite Tencent album, but it is him trying to tell a story again. And I do want to come back to the concept of Tencent as storyteller. My entry into Tanzan as a solo artist, I think, was uh, through all the best cowboys of Chinese eyes. While I was at uni, I would go to the student radio station and I had a shift once a week. And sometimes I'd take my own records and sometimes I'd play whatever was lying around in the studio. And I saw they had a copy of all the best cowboys of Chinese eyes. And I thought, oh, a Tanzan solo album. I wonder whether this is any good. And I just picked a track at random, which was the second track on the album, The Sea Refuses No River.
since discovered is the most celebrated song on the album as i had little idea of his own history about his life and his drug and alcohol abuse but this song i think it's his personal declaration of saying something to the effect of i've done some stupid shit in my life i'm still not sure how i'm going to be but i'm open to getting better right i don't think that that was quite the point at which he did but he was making a public declaration i think it can be taken as a spiritual song but it doesn't have to be it's got this beautiful melody which i don't know whether you could say whether it was melancholic or whether it was hopeful the sea could be the vast teachings of mehababa or it could be the endless possibilities of a life away from what was dragging him down life with the who uh, his guilt over keith moon's death his guilt over the riots in cincinnati well not riots but the the audience the stampedes the stampedes in cincinnati he's acknowledging flaws but unlike say an overtly christian song like amazing grace he's not saying i'm a wretch looking to be saved He's a guy who saw his dreams possibly turn sour and he just wants personal peace of mind. He was never going to give up fame, but fortunately Mehababa never asked him to. Basically, I think that this would this song in a way serves as an epilogue to The Who by Numbers. The Who by Numbers is bleak. Forgetting Squeezebox and John Entwistle's song on the album, the album is really, really bleak because Townsend wasn't in a mood to look forward to things getting better yet. He couldn't put a song on like The Sea Refuses No River at the end of Who By Numbers, but I like to think that it's a beautiful way of saying, right, things were shit, but I'm looking at getting better. And this sort of seems to me like a good epilogue, a good conclusion to that to that album. Uh, and I love the lyric on this song. The Sea Refuses No River... The river is where I am. Uh, There's no guarantee of a happy future, just an opportunity to leave the tributary, enter the sea. If life gets better, great, but he doesn't know. It's, It's just about trying. Much of Pete Townsend's songwriting goes somewhat in the Baba esque themes of love and fulfillment. Besides the lyric, there's a beautiful use of harmonica. The guy was a regular in his band at the time, a fellow called Peter Hope Evans. There's none of the blues cliche tropes in this guy's playing. Uh, look, I, I mean, the other thing is, though, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I don't pretend to understand the grief that a millionaire rock musician would be going through. <laughs> but like any of us plebs, he's entitled to his grief and guilt and use it as inspiration for his creativity. One, it's all relative, isn't it? And, and two, if you've abused your body for that many years and you've kind of exhausted, like, you know, I know that he was a very rich man, but if you've abused your body in that way with kind of narcotics and alcohol, that's definitely going to keep the school, I think. And it will have ramifications. I always felt that he was looking for that elusive kind of UK number one in a weird way. And re- reading Who Am I or Who I Am, I forget the actual title, but... um. He talks really bitterly about the fact that I Can See For Miles never made number one in the UK charts. Right. When you are a kind of what god, it's those things that seem fairly, maybe fairly trivial to us that probably play on the mind a lot more. I remember reading that it's not like that song sank without trace, like it just entered the yeah. top 40 or something like that. I think it was still a top 10 song. 
Um, it was, yeah. I think Pimble Wizard got to like number two as well. Yeah. So, so he, he wanted that challenge of saying, oh, yes, I want to get to number one. But it was still a beloved song. It was not like people didn't yeah. appreciate it. He was being a little bit fussy. He was being a little bit silly. We've been talking for quite a while here. We still haven't talked about White City yet. We're still not going to talk about it just yet. One more thing I want to talk about before we get to the break, and it's going to be relevant going into our conversation of White City, is Townsend as storyteller. In the early 60s, when the Who were just sort of do it under the guise of Maximum R&B and they released just brilliant single after brilliant single and I think everyone out there should have a copy of Meaty, Beaty, Big and Bouncy. Uh, it's yeah. probably one of the greatest collections of pop singles by one act ever. Pictures of Lily, I'm a Boy, My Generation, of course, Substitute. In those days, Townsend is still telling stories. Like before he decided he's going to go long form, he's still telling story. You know, pictures of Lily's his story about wanting to have a wank to some gorgeous star of the 1920s and realizing that she's not, not alive anymore and he can't go searching around. He always had these great narratives in three-minute songs. And then, because I needed to fill out some space, I think it was uh, Kit Lambert had suggested, well, why don't you write like a a seven- or eight-minute song with lots of one-minute songs to tell a slightly longer narrative, and that's a quick one while he's away. And it's a naff story, but it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. has been gone for a year. He was due home yesterday. But he ain't here Her man's been gone For nigh on a year He was due home yesterday But he ain't here Which is what he does as a short storyteller. Now, before I go into this, and you can probably already predict where I'm going, but I want to ask... Do you think that Townsend, as a long-form storyteller, so by the time he gets to Tommy and by the time he tries writing Lifehouse, for, which ended up being Who's Next and Quadrophenia, do you think that Townsend ever worked well as a long-form storyteller at any stage? Not as effectively. I think the stories become so much more nebulous they're not as narratively driven as the kind of, as you mentioned, the shorter three minute 60s, early 60s songs. But I think that is representative maybe of like 60s song writing in microcosm. I think like that's not just Townsend. I think that generally becomes the case with a lot of acts in the 60s where the kind of jaunty three minute thing becomes less significant with the advent of the album. I think that's got something to do with it as well. And I think it's an increase in Townsend's aspirations as a songwriter and also some of the kind of more pomposity of Kit Lambert maybe as well in the fact that he cajoled him, as you say, but also cajoled him into, why don't you make it like more operatic kind of thing and, and set yourself from the crowd. I, I love both forms of Townsend and, and I love Tommy and Quadrophenia and some of the germs of the ideas for Lifehouse as well as the tracks like Substitute, Pictures of Lily, 
I'm a boy, happy Jack and things like that. So I don't necessarily put them against one another. I just kind of appreciate them as very different eras. The reason that I don't think he ever worked as a long form storyteller is I suspect he got a great idea. And I think the germ of every story he's ever tried to tell has always been great. I just don't think he had anyone to rein him in. Absolutely. To, to say, look, sorry, Pete, that doesn't work. If you were writing a book, that would not be the conclusion. I think he always started out with great ideas and just didn't know how to finish them. And if you read, if you come back to the Dave Marsh book, Before I Get Old, one of the things that Dave points out is that every time Tanzen did an interview about Tommy, tell us a story of Tommy, tell us a subtext of Tommy, every time he'd explain a different story. I mean, the, the, yeah. the basic stories there, yeah. Young boy, father goes off to war, he comes back, father kills the, the wife's lover, and he goes deaf, dumb, and blind. Where the story goes beyond that, it changes. And his explanation as to what, the, what everything is a metaphor changes every damn time, even if he did two interviews within two days. And we don't know, is he having fun with the journalists or is he, can't, he just genuinely can't make up his mind? If you're reading a book, you don't necessarily want always to be spoon-fed. You want somewhere to put your own spin, put your own interpretation. But I genuinely think that Townsend doesn't always know what his own story is. It's not like I'm leaving out details here so you can fill in the gaps for yourself. I think it's just he genuinely doesn't always know where his story is going. I think you're right. And we've had that discussion before where there's so much contradiction in in what Townsend feeds the media. I think even if you look at the story of Tommy, it's not a great story, but it was probably the shock of the new at that time. Um, I know it's contentious as to whether people consider that the sort of inaugural rock opera, but it was still a fairly new form at that time. And I think that's what might have might have captivated people more than the story itself. And then as you say, by the time he gets to Lifehouse, I think, I think Daltrey Entwistle and Moon probably tolerated the kind of wackiness of Tommy, but it just got too much with Lifehouse. I think Daltrey even said, like, we, we just literally had no idea what the fuck he was on about, and it just made it just made it too difficult to execute, which is kind of a shame because, you, like, Who's Next is a, a fine album, but you listen to particular songs and you can tell that they would have featured in the original narrative things like Going Mobile and even Barbara O'Reilly, and it, it, it would have been interesting to see how they would have worked thematically in the original context, but it's also ironic that it's arguably their most critically celebrated album, and it kind of moves away from the rock opera theme as well. Well, maybe not so much that it moves away from the rock opera theme, but it's sort of seen as like a second best, at least in Townsend's yeah. eyes. We see it just like as one work without any theme, just a collection of great songs, but to Townsend's mind, it, at the time it was a failure because it was not what he'd originally envisioned. Possibly what was the greatest song to come out of that collection was cast off until Odds and Sods came out, uh, and that was pure and easy. the central core song of the Lifehouse story. You know, there's one note, and once we get to this one note, then all of humanity will combust into into pure energy. I mean, no... I still, I still, that, sorry to interrupt, I still think that was a metaphor for his number one. 
Well, like, as, as the in, perfect note. <laughs> once he gets that number one song, then the Who can spontaneously combust. That might have died out if I can see for miles had uh, gotten to number one then. So, to me, I think that the only album that sort of works as a narrative, and it's because it's not really a narrative, it's a series of vignettes, is Quadrophenia. They attempt to make a longer form narrative at it when Frank Rodin makes the film in 1978 of Quadrophenia, but quite wisely, the liner notes in Quadrophenia, as well as the songs, are more about Jimmy the Moss day-to-day feelings. It's not like, well, today I got up and I took some pills and I went to work and then I went to a nightclub and I danced to the latest Blue Beat songs and the latest R&B songs from Motown and I saw the face. When you get to the song Bellboy, you don't really know. It has to be shown in the film who the face that's gone and disappointed him actually is. It's not really presented much in the narrative of Quadrophenia because, once again, I think if, if you think about this as a collection of songs that are moments from his day or moments from his mind, it works much better if you want to get something thematically out of it. But if you're trying to think of it as a story from start to finish, then, once again, it's not successful in that regard. But if you just think of it as a series of events... And also recognising Jimmy as like something of a unreliable narrator because of his like mental health problems. That is just his perception of what's happening around him and not necessarily what has taken place. So like I remember like watching the film, not so much the film because as you say it's more conventional, but hearing the album and kind of feeling sorry for him by the way he's treated by his parents. But the reality probably was that he would have been an absolute nightmare for his parents to deal with. Mm, absolutely, I think one of the good things about the film is that it doesn't try to paint Jimmy as being the, the true spirit of uh, youthful rebellion. It, it, I mean, it does to an extent, but it also shows, you know, he can be a bit of a prat. And even though his, his parents are old world conservative, and it does show that he's been like a real dick to his mother. It shows, you know, how you have a little bit of sympathy for her, which I think the record is all told from Jimmy's perspective, and you can get the impression, as you say, of an unreliable narrator, but you get a little bit of the mother's side or the parent's side or his friend's side in the film. So you get a little bit of a wider perspective. He's still the core focus of the story in the film, but our sympathies are not always with him. Even his great act of rebellion of when he essentially tells his boss to shove the job up, job up his ass, that that doesn't manifest itself in a successful way. He literally just goes off the rails and heads down to Brighton. And I think it's, it's kind of questioning the authenticity of that youth rebellion thing and how, how much of a good thing it actually is. He, he's an outsider, Jimmy. He's not the face. And then when he finds out that, that the ace face is actually a, a kind of imposter himself, that's when he, he kind of, it all comes into question for him. Right, right, right. This sort of makes a good correlation to something I read from an interview that he did in 1986. I was sort of going through my copy of White City the other day, and I'd gone and cut out an interview that Townsend had, um, I can't remember with which newspaper, it showed up here in The Age, but I think it was like a reprint from an American newspaper. In 1986, he said that to a degree that much of Rock's idealism was based on very wonky reasoning. Wonky was his word when he used lyrics like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, in Won't Get Fooled Again. A lot of people sort of think that that's a song about rebellion. It's not a song about rebellion. It's possibly a song about how the rebellion didn't work out. Uh, it's futile. 
is, is absolutely futile. I don't necessarily know that I agree 100% with him, but I see where he's coming from. And this whole theme shows up again in Quadrophenia. At the end of the film, he goes and ditches his... Uh, spoiler alert! Goes and ditches his <laughs> Vespa off the side of a cliff. That's you know, that symbol of his rebellion. I like the idea that someone would listen to a podcast about a mid eighties solo Pete Townsend album and might not have seen Quadrophenia. That would be amazing. Exactly. I mean, although mind you, there were people in the seventies who were saying to each other, "Hey, I hear Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings." So <laughs> it can't happen. Um, and thus far, this has not been a podcast about a solo Pete Townsend album because we haven't discussed anything to do with it. So you know what I think we're going to do, Charlie Mahoney, is I think we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about White City, the film, and then White City, the album, because there's a film associated with this. Oh, my Lord. There are probably people thinking, what have I gotten into? I just want to hear these people talk about what they think about these songs. But that's not how Love That Album works, okay? We ramble. We're hoping that you enjoy the conversation anyway. So, look, we'll be back. We'll have a quick break, and uh, we'll be back in a moment. Junkies. It's a music podcast, baby, covering every musical genre. What do we got that the others don't? I'll tell you. We got Mondo Heather's Heather Drain. Noise. Junkie. We got Wolf and Raisins HP. Noise. Junkie. We got Dark Destinations Father Malone. Noise. Junkie. And we got you. We got music and we got you, baby. And you get it at Weird and Way Media. Noise Junkies. Hey, what's up? It's Fresco Niles of The Knack, and you're listening to Love That Album. And we're back from break. Morris Bushtinsky here in Melbourne, Charlie Mahoney over there in London, and we're here to talk about White City, the 1985 album and film from Pete Townsend. Now, we have to talk about the film because Pete originally envisioned this as a film and record project. This is not like Quadrophenia that came after the fact or Tommy that came after the fact. He originally had planned a film and the record to come out at the same time and they were an intertwined project. So I'll ask you your thoughts in a minute, Charlie. We'll talk about the film as an entity before we get to the album because as we do on the show, we push things out. On paper, the story is about a rock star played by Pete Townsend, talk about typecasting, who... (laughs) who comes back to his old working-class housing estate in London called White City to put on a concert at the local swimming pool. Really? Okay, great acoustics there. Good on you, Pete. He meets up with his childhood friend, played by Andrew Wilde, and his friend's ex-wife, played by Frances Barber. He does a show and leaves, and that's it. It starts off looking like it's going to be a film with a social realism bent. Once again, Pete Townsend and director Richard Lowenstein, who's an Australian director who did Dogs in Space, which we've discussed on the See Here podcast. Pete Townsend and Richard Lowenstein have no idea how to put a narrative on the film's skeleton of an outline. This is not a Ken Loach film. This film looked like it wanted to go to that territory, and it didn't. I did read in an interview where Pete Townsend said that they only had a budget for a short film 
And given it was still in the MTV era, the financiers asked for a few whole songs to be filmed so that they could use them as music videos to promote the White City album, thus really reducing the time for any meaningful dialogue. But I'm going to push this over to you. I know that you have some issues with it like I do, but I just want to see... What were your expectations? Did the film do anything well? And what were your actual concerns with it? And if, if there's anything good about it, what did you think it was? This is the thing. My expectations are quite important because this could have been something special, I think. As you said, it starts out almost like it's going to be a slice of social realism. That opening shot that pans from like kind of the motorway onto the estate with images of barbed wire and things like that and you know, a really kind of eerie kind of landscape it makes you think that you might be in for something quite interesting here and almost immediately it's interspersed with these kind of shots of is it Andrew Wilde's yeah diving into the swimming pool and you think oh, okay here we go like it's going to be a bit more kind of nebulous it's going to be a little bit more poetic than that and then obviously you see Townsend's um, beginning to perform the opening track on the album and you, and you realize it's it's not going to be quite as kitchen sink as you initially expect and I think that was a disappointment for me really is that it didn't know what it wanted to be it was like a hodgepodge of different things that never really worked together I could see some of the ideas there in fact Townsend said that Lowenstein made it even more into a film than he wanted it to be like, <sighs> I think it would, have, like, it would have been even more surreal if, if it was up to Townsend and I watched an interview with him where I can't remember who it was interviewing him but um, he was an American journalist and he said, you know, Ray Davis did something similar not long before with Return to Waterloo. He said, how much of an inspiration was that? And Townsend actually said he was more inspired by something like Purple Rain, because even though they're obviously very different, he said that Purple Rain as an album had a group of songs that didn't really inform the story in the feature-length film, and the feature-length film didn't really inform any of the musical content of the album. And I think that's what he was attempting to do with White City, but... I don't regard it as a success in in terms of the film. I just think it's it feels like a bit of an indulgence. It feels like it's just he should have made one music video and it just expanded into 45 minutes and tried to do too many different things and ultimately tried to do them unsuccessfully. The film was made during Margaret Thatcher's reign. So obviously, you know, there's going to be scenes of what looks like urban decay in Margaret Thatcher's England and there's a couple of visual moments where the two main protagonists Jim and Alice played by Andrew Wilde and Francis Barber show them going from love to despair but there's no narrative to show why or why Pete being there means anything to anyone there's no character development there's no real story but it doesn't really work as a character piece either however if you actually read the blurb on the back of the album which is written in a similar fashion to the narrative or the the character piece in the quadrophenia double album that actually works and there's, I think there's been some suggestion that the Jim in White City might be Jim from Quadrophenia, but yeah. several years down the track. I can sort of see that. I'm going to read something. I found this fantastic Pete Townsend resource website. It's almost like my back pages, but it's only for Pete Townsend. Any bit of journalism, any interview that's come out over the years. So I, had, I was having a read through the White City section. And Tanzan, there's, there's a couple of things here which 
I don't even know how he got away with it at the time. It's sort of pretty embarrassing to think about it now. But uh, Townsend said he wanted to make the film as a chance to observe how people live their day-to-day lives differently to him. He escaped and felt guilt. I mean, really. Um, They remained in White City and he got on with life. He'd escaped the White City complex. There's an interview that he did in 1985 attributed to a show called Off the Record. And for for Melbourne listeners, that's not obviously the Off the Record that we know here on 3 Triple Arts, but different off the record. Uh, But uh, Townsend says, I'm quoting a little bit here. He says, the story is very simple. I started to drive through the estate on the way back from London. One day I noticed that all the streets were named after places in the British Empire. Then I saw it was a rather sinister implication that quite a few of the names were connected to South Africa. Durban House, Bloemfontein Road. Then I thought, ah, this is interesting, because I was very concerned at the time, reading a lot about South Africa and apartheid. I'm not one of these lefty individuals who just criticizes South Africa out of hand. My reason, my passion for the problem in South Africa is because it's so close to ours. As events recently have shown, seems to me like a love story gone wrong. Like a country with so much potential with its brilliant white community who are capable of earning millions. I know it's got a lot to do with gold, but it also happens that the South African money people, the financiers, are brilliant people. They are equally as good as the ones on Wall Street and the ones in our city. It's another Hong Kong in a way. And this fantastic, rich, indigenous African population are separated. They're not even allowed to make love. It just seemed to me like a potential love story gone wrong. I thought I would try a metaphor, a very simple metaphor. A couple who live on the White City estate who are estranged. They are prevented by some external circumstances from properly meshing together, and the story grew from there. It's very simple, but it works, I think. Now, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I don't care how Tanzen spins it. This non-narrative does not present itself to me as any sort of metaphor about apartheid. An estranged working-class couple with domestic violence issues does not present itself as an apartheid metaphor. I mean, had you heard him say anything like that before? I'd I'd heard um, him mention the fact that the particular houses on the estate were named after things related to the British Empire. And one of the things that I found problematic with that before going to the other side of it is that he's making the assumption that when the British Empire was at its height that you didn't have these low-income deprived areas. It's, it's kind of like implying there's an irony that now we're not like the now we're not the big boss of the world. Uh, this is how people are living. No, people lived in abject poverty when the British Empire was at its peak. Children didn't have shoes on their feet. You had three-year-old chimney sweeps. So I don't really take his point there that like this is a, a hangover of our decline, if you want to call it that. Um, I think that's a very romanticised perception. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think he's really just kind of, for want of a better description, talking bollocks there. I'd love to have known whether uh, Roger Daltrey had heard the album or he'd read any of these interviews, <laughs> what he was thinking, you know, like, oh, Pete, you fucking lost the plot, man. Or whether he was thinking, no, this is typical of what I always knew that arty-farty Townsend was always talking about. There's another point that he makes in another interview where he says, I wanted something that told a story about people who had grown up as I did, but who had not run away as I did to seek their fortune and other ways. I went off to be with a rock and roll band and went to America, went to Europe to travel the world. And I wanted to go back and take a look at the people who stayed at home and see how they dealt with their problems and how they had grown and evolved. 
And to be honest with you, I've never read anything more patronizing. No, I probably have read other things more patronizing, but that's pretty fucking patronizing. Uh, I mean, look, you know, he's, he's probably saying, he's probably thinking, you know, like I can identify with you. I've, I've had alcohol and drug abuse problems, so I know what you're going through. No, Pete, people, they're not thinking, wow, we want to be like you, the, the great rock star who made something of himself and became fabulously wealthy and fabulously celebrated. People are not consciously thinking about him. Like he's saying, well, I'm thinking about you and I'm, I'm interested in you. I'm not doing anything about it. But the last line of the film is a voiceover from Tanzin as he just slips into the crowd uh, as he's walking down the street and he says, Me? I went back on the road. Boys, and he's just this vision of him walking with the ordinary people, inverted commas, ordinary people. Uh, yeah. I mean, God knows, I love Tanzin's songs as a songwriter, but uh, really, that is just so incredibly patronizing. It's that paternalism, it's that kind of centerist paternalism you get in politics at times, where it's like, you know, I would have looked as if I care, but as you mentioned, not really that bothered about no. systematically changing it. I don't really believe that Townsend did come from that kind of background originally. His father was in the Squadronaires, and I think he grew up in somewhere like Ealing or Acton, which is, is not necessarily the most affluent area, but certainly a lot more affluent than the White City Estate. But I've seen this kind of thing before, in, in certainly in academia, with like you get like anthropologists, and they think that they can tell people about their existence just because they've spent a few months on a council estate observing people. And I, I find that like quite offensive, to be honest. Even if it wasn't the, their intention, I don't think, as you say, they realise how patronising that kind of thing is. I, I, I'm sure he means well. Sure, I mean, but the thing is, if, if someone else were making a film about Pete Townsend making a film, he would be presented as being something of a smug prat. There's not much that goes right with this film. I mean, like, there's moments where it looks like they're trying to show something of a Ken Loach social realist type of scenario, but not enough there's moments of domestic violence, but we don't know why. And oh, he ends up, I think he ends up blaming a lot, a lot of it on his mother because he was ignored because his mother ran a pub uh, in his youth. And I'm trying to remember if the woman who played his mother, I don't remember the actress's name, but I think it was Vivian's mother in The Young Ones. Oh, he is a bastard, isn't he? It makes sense that I recognised her because I also recognised Gwyneth Strong, who played for Sandra in Only Fools and Horses, which was totally random. And obviously, Francis Barber's a pretty well-known actress here. So maybe that's why they didn't have much of a budget, because they used it on a fairly decent cast and just came up with absolute shit in terms of the film. These lengthy film clips. I mean, like, normally when you watch a, a film like this, you might get, like, a minute of the song, or you have a much longer film. But as he said, we had a limited budget, and uh, I'm sure that these actors were probably sort of like going on a reduced scale, but, oh, the opportunity to appear in, in a film with Pete Townsend, oh, wow, oh, that'll, be, that'll be something special. And then watching it later and thinking, oh. And by the way, for any of you out there who are listening, thinking, well, I want to see just how bad this is for myself, I will put a link in the show notes, but it's on Vimeo. Originally, I think it came out on a VHS cassette and maybe it was on Laserdisc. I don't know, but I remember seeing... It was. It I, was Laserdisc. Right. I remember seeing the videotape in the video library back at the time when it came out I rented it out then and couldn't take it back quickly enough uh, <laughs> this, this is a bit disappointing so look I mean I 
don't know how much more we're not going to sort of like devote lots of time to this as a film but just to sort of say if you go you go in expecting something a little bit more from Townsend because of the impression that it initially tries to give you but you get like about three or four full songs in video clip form and you know half of it's done in a swimming pool which you know any musician will tell you that if you try whistling in a swimming pool you'll get shit ass acoustics so what the hell is he thinking I think obviously I'd heard the album before I'd listened, uh, uh, before I'd watched the film. I was hoping that the film might illuminate a few more things and actually connect the dots and clarify stuff. But I found the opposite. I found I found it made it even more kind of confusing. Really, I think each song on the album kind of makes sense in its own isolation. But uh, I was thinking, oh, okay, this will make more sense when I go and watch the short film. And can't say that was the case at all. No, no. People have been waiting long enough. Let's actually talk about the music. Let's actually talk about this album overall. I think you alluded to this before about who's next, Charlie, where you said as a song cycle, it works independently of Lifehouse. And that's a beautiful thing about White City is that its strength, you can listen to this without having to really have ever seen the film or even not even having to have read the liner notes on the back of the album, which tells something of a story. I don't think that there's that much of a connection, although I'll probably make a couple of connections through our discussion of this. This album came out as the first thing he released post-Who. All the Best Cowboys Have Tried His Eyes came out shortly before It's Hard, and Empty Glass came out, I think, just before Face Dances. So... He was still writing for himself as opposed to writing for The Who and had to make that distinction. Whereas by the time he gets to White City, it's just, I'm just doing what I'm going to do. This is an independent set of songs. The Who doesn't exist. He doesn't have to take into consideration how would Roger sing this? How would John Entwistle play this? How would Kenny Jones play this? It's just this great collection of songs that he's writing effectively for what became his solo band. And he toured around. I think there's also a videotape that I saw at the time uh, that the album came out. I can't remember where he did the show. Maybe it was some, maybe it was in London. I'm not sure. But basically using the album, basically using the band that appears on the album, including Dave Gilmore. There was Brixton Academy. I think they did a couple of dates there to celebrate the sort of album's release. As I said, I love how this album lyrically, I mean, there's plenty of great music on this and we'll be speaking about the music, but given that Tanzania is so much renowned for his wordsmithery, if that's a word, that you can listen to this without giving a shit about what the story in the film is about or what the story as conveyed on the back of the album with the liner notes is about. Just put it on and you don't have to think, hang on, what, what does this relate to? One of the musicians on the album is, as I mentioned, was Dave Gilmore. So I wanted to ask Charlie, have you heard Dave Gilmore's album About Face his second solo album, which came out maybe just before this and was probably his connection to um, Tanzan inviting him to do White City. Had you, had you heard about Face? I have to say only in relation to kind of researching this because reading about White City, I was trying to get a few facts that I wasn't aware of and it said that Tanzan had initially written a song for About Face that Gilmore didn't use and then gave back to... Townsend, and I'm, I don't know whether that was Give Blood or White City No, no, it was, it, was White, it was White City Fighting, yeah. So, yeah, well, I, I was impressed with it, actually. I enjoyed listening to it. It's not something that I can claim to have, have had much knowledge of, or, or indeed any of Dave Gilmore's solo career before 
sort of kind of preparing for this. I think I bought the cassette tape of this. I played that quite a fair bit back in the day, but I had not listened to it in years. And there's one song in it which became the single. I don't think it did anything here, but I loved it called Blue Light. an album itself overall i think actually blue light is sort of like the dance track on the album there's Mm. the album still sounds sort of like where gilmore went and took pink floyd post roger waters uh which is still you know late era pink floyd like late era with waters maybe a little bit like the final cut uh, but certainly more um like momentary lapse of reason i guess in in that regard Uh, It's not radically different. And that's something, though, that I would say I admire about Townsend, his solo albums through the 80s, in that it does sound different to what he was doing with The Who. Certainly different to what he was doing with Moon Era Who. Yeah, pre-Face Dances, definitely. Right, right, right. I mean, as as I mentioned before, I, I think that Face Dances could have been a Townsend solo album. But White City still sounds sufficiently different to what he was doing with Face Dancers and, and It's Hard. Maybe not necessarily taking the songwriting in a different direction, although maybe there's an argument for that too, but more the arrangements. I tend to think that the song, some of the songs on White City, and we'll note specific examples, are more based around riffs rather than classic Townsend songwriting development. I mean, it's not like listening to Behind Blue Eyes or... I'm a boy or or um, the real me, which is more like you know, melodic development. Uh, songs like Give Blood and Secondhand Love and Face to Face all sound like they're based around riffs rather than more conventional songwriting development. And that seems to me is a different way for Townsend to work. That's something I really respect him for. But these songs, because he's developed them with such brilliant musicians, they flesh these riffs out into full songs and they're 100% work. One thing that I find interesting, so the, the first song on the album, Give Blood, which was a single, I think the second single after Face to Face, because he uses Dave Gilmore on this song and on this album, I see a relation in a way to stuff that he'd done with Gilmore's solo work and with Floyd, because the opening of Give Blood, well, certainly on the single version and maybe a minute into the album version, has, I'm not sure really how to quite describe it, but the guitar technique, I'm not sure if it's a, it's not a flange sort of thing, but the guitar technique that Gilmore employs sounds very much like the opening of Run Like Hell. I think it's quite brave in a way. Townsend, you know, he's often cited as one of the iconic guitarists of 
rock music, but more as a rhythm guitarist. And it, like you know, what he did on the rhythm guitar brought it a lot more respectability. It didn't always get that level of respectability. It was always given to you know the Claptons and the Jeff Becks of this world, you know, who were great lead guitar players. How many guitarists could play Pinball Wizard the way he did? Very, very inventive. So it's quite, I think, a brave move for him on his album to be bringing another iconic guitarist, not a nameless lead guitar player. He brought Dave Gilmore, who was already known in his own right for having been in another one of the titan bands of the 60s and the 70s, to say, right, I want you to create something flash on my album. I think that was a pretty brave move. Certainly adds another dimension to it as well. I think, uh, as you say, if Give Blood had been a Pete Townsend song alone without Gilmore, I think it would have still been great, but it just wouldn't have had the same kind of edge. It just works so well. It actually sort of signposts quite a futuristic sound to me. I'm loath to sort of bring up things like U2 and The Edge, but it really put me in that kind of that mind state that it was it was it was more kind of late 80s, early 90s sounding. Coming back to the song itself, the edited single version of the song starts where Pete Townsend's guitar first slashes in, giving way to the band and Dave Gilmore. But I love on the album version, which has this one chord synth intro and the sound of an electronic heartbeat. We get this fractured guitar sound over the heartbeat as the tension ramps up. And it's the oral equivalent of watching a movie that's a thriller. You're anxious, wondering where it's going to lead to an explosion. And it does that when Simon Phillips' drumming comes in and Dave Gilmore starts his arpeggiated guitar playing. intros to albums that start in that sort of quiet tension filled way and then you wonder where is this going to go before something really big actually happens you're waiting for something it, it it's creating a mood it's creating tension and give blood really does that and the album could not have started with any other song it provides such an adrenaline rush, I think. There's a, there's a kind of low synth sound that also reminded me of Time off Dark Side of the Moon, which I never really thought about until I was aware that Dave Gilmore had featured on the song. But there are actually a couple of tracks on this that they almost lull you into a full sense of security with their intro. And then when they kick in, they're so loud and so driving. Um, I really like the juxtaposition that that creates. Right. I think that one of those examples is another song that we'll get to in a moment, which is uh, Face to Face. But once again, the, the single of that, just like the single of Give Blood, starts at the inverted commas exciting part so like there's what whole one minute intro before i think simon phillips drums going through the the gating process that phil collins had made ubiquitous throughout the 80s yeah. um it's a wonderful contrast and i love dynamic in a song anyone who's listened to the show has often heard me talk about use of dynamics but that's like a really big contrast we're not talking about a gradual ascension into something it's quiet one minute and then it just explodes in both of those songs 
continuing on for a second just with give blood once again simon phillips as drummer he really works for this he's an amazing performer i actually went to see him give a drum clinic here years ago and he had like a a long list of things that he recorded for but the one question everyone was asking was about was give blood give blood which if you probably like read it on paper read the transcript on paper it's not that difficult a beat but it is creative yeah as i said he was fascinating it was and everyone just wanted to hear him talk about that i hadn't been to that clinic in many many years so i forgot what he was like but he just seems like a really lovely lovely guy very very talented drummer and he was as much a part of pete townsend's solo sound as moon was a part of the Who sound. Like, Townsend's always gone for great drummers. I was speaking with a friend of mine on a show that we did about the small faces, Ogden Nuts Gone Flake. And the irony is that Kenny Jones in the small faces days, if you listen to some of the more R&B flavoured tracks on that album, Kenny Jones, whilst not sort of going full on wild like Moon did, but his playing is more like Moon's in that period than what he eventually became. Moon and Jones were friends. And I think Kenny Jones played drums on the film soundtrack of Tommy. So it's only once he gets to face dances that he says, right, well, I'm not Keith. I'm not going to go full on wild. I'm not even going to do what I did in the small faces days, but this is what I'm going to do. And I think he he was unfairly maligned for, for what he did there. But certainly Simon Phillips ratchets that up he's not a keith moon type drummer he's maybe a more technical version of what kenny jones did in in face dances but it's still very technical very precise but maybe just more creative because he had he probably had greater chops than kenny jones did but simon phelps i don't think he was suited to that brief period of the who that he was in but he's very 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 suited for pete townsend's solo albums so yeah, I absolutely love what he uh, what he contributes. He's a he's a very I think a very musical drummer. It's the sort of thing where you think it's it's not just what's the first beat I can think about. It's what do I do here that adds to the music or is its own musical creative. You know, if you could give him as a drummer a songwriting credit, he'd be deserving of it. Certainly on his songs on this album. Although he's not the only drummer on this album. I can't remember his name. Uh, there's uh, also the drummer from Big Country. Uh, oh, uh, Scottish group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Clem Burke from uh, Blondie plays on a couple of cuts on this. But the big, more technical songs on this album, I think, are all Simon Phillips. It's an interesting one. I've actually made a note of it. Uh, there were certain songs on White City where they may have had Keith Moon turning in his grave because they're so kind of more, not conventional, I don't want to be disparaging about it, but less kind of indulgent and and kind of even over the top, really. Um, And it relates to some of the commentary that Townsend has made about Moon's drumming in the past. Uh, And it relates to what you say as well about Townsend sort of changing his mind in interviews. For instance, in his autobiography, he refers to Moon's drumming on Quadrophenia as outstanding and spectacular. But then I I saw a subsequent documentary that Townsend made with the BBC about Quadrophenia as, as an album in itself. And he was saying like, oh, I know it's sort of kind of sacrilege to say, but I never quite rated Moon as much of a drummer as everyone else did. And, and it's like, well, 
it seems it seems very very uncharitable to say the least. But it kind of explains as to why Townsend went more for Phillips in his solo work, right? And and, and indeed Kenny Jones later on in the Who's career, I think he wanted something somewhat more not lesser but more conventional and, and even as Daltrey described it more metronomic well the, the difference is that basically the other members of the band were supporting Moon or at least that's what Keith thought whereas Townsend said no I want someone supporting me I want them to be technically yeah. brilliant but ultimately they're supporting the song rather than the rest of us supporting the drummer once again as that Dave Marsh book that I keep bringing up shows Townsend is a very unreliable narrator and every interview he's going to do he's going to say something different be it for his own amusement or it's how he woke up feeling that day moving away from the music or the drumming of that song I just sort of wanted to see what you thought about this lyrically I find something contradictory in the chorus of the song of Give Blood if it is indeed a give chorus where he sings give blood but keep blood between brothers now Pete's singing about how we continue to do our best to help people. We give blood, literally or metaphorically, to help those in need, but it's never enough. You can give you can give it all, but you still your ass for more. Maybe this is his view on his time in the hoof. Fans wanted more from the band than they had nothing to give. Blood is the most precious resource that we have. We donate it to keep people alive, or we give blood when we feel comfortable to make sure others can live or survive. Pete Townsend's advice to the chorus is, give love and keep blood between brothers. Now, this is a line I never quite understood. Does this line mean, one, love is not needed to give blood? I'm talking not about the so-called romantic love of a partner or the love of a family member. I'm talking about the love of humanity that we need to go to that level of giving blood. And B, is love superficial? Is there a point where you love someone but stop short of helping them in a time of crisis? I know nothing about Meher Baba philosophy apart from a requirement to adhere to his principles as best as you can. But I did find a quote from Mehababa to see what he had to say about love as the ultimate goal and self-interest is the opposite. Uh, he says, love is the divine gift. Once you know how to love, there is no trouble. Once you have adapted yourself to the way, your hardships disappear. I'm not necessarily saying where I stand on life and it's fair to say that Pete Tanzan spent a lot of his life feeling guilt for living the life he was living, which involved self-interest and narcissism and not adapting Barber's principles, which he proclaimed he was devoted to. It's fair to say that they're goals which ordinary people can aspire to without having to reach to the stars. But when he sings give love and keep blood between brothers, which is the ultimate sacrifice. Is he undervaluing a core tenet of Barbarism, which is love? That's part of its belief system. It contradicts when he sang only three years beforehand in Let My Love Open the Door. Superficially about romantic love, but I'm sure it's inspired by Baba teachings. And on this song, he's saying love is all right, but blood is the ultimate. But that seems contradictory to Barbarism. I've gone and bullshit a lot there, but do you see a contradiction to what he's sang before? Or do you stand anywhere on that line, give love but keep blood between brothers? It's a line that's always sort of confused me. I've, I've always tried to decipher it and never really been successful. I, without being sort of crash about it as well, this is a song that's made at a time in which the kind of the AIDS epidemic is, is really kind of at the forefront of people's minds. 
and I've always wondered whether that had something to do with it, but as I say, never successfully deciphered what Townsend means here. That's the interesting thing, because back in that era where there was so much misinformation going around and people saying, oh, even if you donate blood, you stand a chance of contracting it. The ultimate sacrifice of giving blood out of your own body is an act of love. So it says, you know, give love, but keep blood between brothers. But you don't give blood if you don't have love. So it seems like he's he's contradicting his spiritual principles and his own principles that he'd gone and recorded in previous songs. And given the quotation that you referred to earlier, where he's saying, you know, I know I'm not one of these lefties who just blindly criticises South Africa. It sounds like he's going for a transitionary sort of political base. Right. He's becoming not more conservative, but perhaps less as we've touched on, less idealistic, less left-wing, a little bit more hard-boiled about things. Where he made that quote in 86 saying that he found that Rock's idealism was based on fairly wonky ground. The question is, did he ever have any of that idealism? And the thing is, maybe did he select what type of idealism he subscribed to? It's not like, well, you can't declare that I should be devoted to A cause, B cause, C cause and D cause. I'm committed to A and B, but C and D are not within my wheelhouse. It could equally be about that. He's got more masks than Mr. Ben. the themes of White City, the story is the broken relationship between the two central characters, Jim and Alice. There's also talk of the non-existent relation between Jim and his mother, who ran a bar when he was a child and, as we said in the film, run by Vivian's mother. Now, presuming secondhand love is sung from Jim's perspective, it could be aimed at either relationship, although in the liner notes he acknowledges that he and Alice are separated because he became violent and abusive. Resentment and finger-pointing often do come from the person who's done wrong, but given his acknowledgement the split is his fault, it seems likely that he's blaming his mother for his crappy life. Although there's that line, all my money is spent on you, which might seem like it was more about a romantic relationship that went off the rail. I find it interesting, though, that this song, apart from the middle eight, which is a direct callback to Give Blood, is all centered around one chord. No change up, yet it never gets dull, it's hypnotic. Uh, And I think for that matter, most of Face to Face is also centered around one chord. So as is the intro to, I'm jumping the gun, but I Am Secure's got that kind of hypnotic, kind of, not monotonous, but repetitive aspect to it as well. So it is kind of like an emerging theme that I'm noticing on the album without having really thought about it before. Yeah, I I want to come back to I Am Secure, but just while you briefly mention it, I think that that I Am Secure opening part involved him doing the same sort of musical approach that he did for Barbara O'Reilly and won't get fooled again where he programmed but into a, but using a whole band rather than just a synth. He programmed characteristics of Mayor Barber and it spits it out into this synthesized theme, which is what he did for those two songs. I always had the impression that I'm secure he was doing the same sort of thing, programming Mehababa characteristics into a synthesizer. I don't pretend to understand what that actually meant, but it does sound like it's the same sort of musical approach that he did to those two songs.
there's three songs on side one, Give Blood, Face to Face, and Secondhand Love, which all have a level of intensity. And they're all separate. Yes. They're all separated by brilliant blues and hiding out, which sound, I mean, they're great songs, but they sound like rather light musically, rather like, okay, we're going to give you a brief break. And I don't think it was by any accident that that side of the album was programmed in that way. Side two, great music, but it doesn't sound like it has that approach where it sounds like this is very deliberate on side one of the album. Totally. I've written in my notes uh, with relation to hiding out. Light, beautiful blues, it's more laid back in its vibrant compared to the more aggressive nature of Give Blood and Face to Face. And I also put that that's, if, if you're trying to compare it to the overall concept or even the film, but these songs seem to be talking about the ills of society witnessed by Jim or Townsend's protagonist on the estate, but at the same time having a sort of deep affection about where they're from. So it, it's creating those contrasts with the sequencing of the album on that first side, I think. Even I Am Secure does sort of relate to something of the narrative. Look, I want to come back to Face to Face in, in a couple of minutes, but we've already sort of gone down this road. So as we're talking about before, Townsend came up with this whole ridiculous notion of about White City and the relationship between the main protagonists being a metaphor for apartheid. This in the mid-80s. About, and I think this album came out about the same time or maybe just before Paul Simon's Graceland. And as you remember, yeah. he came in for a whole lot of flack. But you know, it, it seemed from my memory on this side of the world that South African apartheid was a large part of what was in the news in 85 and 86, the continuing incarceration in Nelson Mandela, the worldwide anti-apartheid movements, including sanctions against South Africa and the eventual repealing of apartheid laws under F.W. de Klerk. And the big music news, once again, was Paul Simon releasing his Graceland album, much of which exposed black South African artists to the wider world. But of course, he came under fire from African National Congress and many artists in the music industry outside of South Africa who said that there was a ban in contact with South Africa until apartheid was stopped, regardless of who the Graceland album benefited. So Pete Townsend said in an interview in the real white city estate, there were, I mean, this is pretty much what you said earlier on, that there was a lot of the old British Empire. There was Australia Street and Canada Way and South Africa Road and basically sort of thought that the dismantling of apartheid would be related to the dismantling of the British Empire. But this white city estate was a reminder of the old empire. And I, I think that he's really clutching at straws for uh, that is his use of metaphor. But he actually uses the word apartheid in I Am Secure. The two songs that I think sort of relate to his so-called apartheid theme, or at least Jim's insular nature, I Am Secure and Hiding Out. I Am Secure, really, it's a short song of two halves. You've already got to mention that first half, which is all instrumental, and it's just this riff playing over and over again. Before he gets into his acoustic guitar. I think it lyrically, it's, it's, I mean, musically, it's a beautiful melody, that second half. And he, see, he sees things like, I see the panic of the people in motion. I can stand here and look out on an ocean. But he sings he's detached from all this. My room is floating above the fallout. No one can see me or hear me if I call out. And the kicker is, 
I am secure in this world of apartheid. This is my soul, but it's connected to starlight. I feed the boys, I hear secrets whispered. I know the hearts that are battered and blistered. I am secure in this world of apartheid. This is myself. But it's connected to starlight. What's that old quote from Oscar Wilde? We're all of us in the gutter, but some of us are looking at, the, at the stars. At the stars. I can't think what work it's from. It's from one of the... It would have been from poetry, because I think he only wrote one novel, but yeah. You see what he's trying to do there? I, I, but Townsend's not necessarily judging Jim for his insularity. In fact, you know, because he's gone and said, I didn't necessarily go the, the way the rest of the world did about apartheid. But he's gone and used that actual word on his character, meaning it to be a metaphor for separateness. And I think apartheid actually does mean separation. It's certainly used more in common parlance now. It's in the vernacular, but yeah. Yeah, so you, you can't sort of like really go, so no, well, I'm, I'm using it in its original meaning. I really, really like the song, and I just wish he hadn't gotten it used, the, the whole notion of South African apartheid, as a metaphor for his character's situation. It creaks, doesn't it? It really creaks. Yeah, are you able to separate yourself from that as a notion and just to like see it right? Well, the song is about a guy whose life has gone askew and he doesn't want to go into the outside world. He's just happy to look at things from the inside looking out. Had it been written now, possibly, but I think had it been written in, what, 1984, I just think it's too relevant, isn't it, to the actual thing that's happening in the world at that time. I think it's quite difficult to separate it from that, knowing what's going on in South Africa. Um, and it's, it's like another example of Townsend being very heavy-handed in his treatment of this topic. But I also wrote that... The second section of I Am Secure kind of is sort of like highly reminiscent of, um, and it makes sense that Jim would be a continuation of Jimmy the Mod because it's very reminiscent of things like uh, Cut My Hair, both melodically and in tone, but also like the, is it, I think it's like the middle eight of the punk and the Godfather where it becomes quite melancholic and, and tranquil. So if I'm clutching at straws. Suit, suit, Think you are clutching at straws because cut my hair and the punk meets a godfather were both about identity i'm living yeah. i'm living in my space uh, well i mean i guess the punk meets a godfather is more about self-declaration of confidence but certainly cut my hair does have a strong aspect of uh, vulnerability and his character in i'm secure and hiding out are both about a character that's expressing vulnerability yeah cut my hair was sort of that my generation but it's still his jimmy the mod never really felt completely comfortable amongst his own generation never mind the generation of people that he's supposed to be rebelling against so uh, i don't think you're clutching at straws at all it's just that i I would say i have to move with the fashion or be outcast so even if i'm not 100 percent behind the mod movement if i don't do this i'll become even more disenfranchised i'll become more insular yeah 
Yeah. And it takes to the end of the film where he tosses off his... Uh, uh, I was worried what his, you were going to say then. Oh, behave. His, his <laughs> Vespa. Although, I mean, mind you, I think I prefer in a way the album, which finishes off with Love Rain Over Me, and he's sitting out on the rock. Amazing. The, uh, and, Amazing. And, and just like he realises that love, there we go with love again, is the most important thing. He finds his confidence to say, this is what I want. I don't need to follow a fashion. I don't need to wear a suit and learn the latest dances. I just want what I want. So I, I saw that as a more successful ending to, than to the film, but I do love the ending of the film, how they chose, and they probably had no other way than to do it like that. The other sort of insular song on the album, which musically, as we said before, is a little bit more poppy, a little bit of a light relief from the heaviness of Give Blood, Face to Face and Secondhand Love. It almost sounds a little out of place on the album, but I like that it's there anyway. It's sort of Pete Townsend's interpretation of Caribbean music, uh, his appropriation, if you want to put it like that. It has none of the earnestness, I think, of the second half of I'm Secure, yet still sounds lyrically like it's part of the same song. From my window I see roads lead to darkness heading home. I hear the waterfall of women weeping, hear the distant noise of traffic stalling. I am safe, hidden here, I'm hiding out. So it's still pretty serious, but maybe not quite as earnest as I'm secure and certainly that Caribbean feel. Maybe you end up, as a lot of people do, paying more attention to the music than to the lyric. It's a happy, not necessarily classic Townsend melody, but it does work. And I still respect the fact that for a guy who so rarely did songs that were maybe light, and I don't want to use the word fluffy, but just the fact that he chose here to do something that was you know, a little less earnest. I also think because there's that dichotomy between the melody and the lyrical content, that can sometimes make it a little bit more sinister. It's, I'm trying to think of examples from other artists that do it. I think that Neil Finn of Crowded House was a master of taking a happy melody and making something a little bit more sinister out of it. Their debut song, Mean to Me, that song opens up with a story about a suicide. But if you don't listen, if you're not paying attention to the lyrics, you just think that this is a joyous piece of pop songwriting. The Smiths, maybe, uh, some of their tracks. Cemetery Gates, Girlfriend in a Coma. That sort of juxtaposition between Morrissey's lyrics and Johnny Myers' guitar playing certainly relates to that. I can't say for definite that's what Townsend was trying to achieve, but I'm just thinking about it. The more that you describe it as a kind of lighter song, the more it makes me want to listen to the lyrical content and analyse it a bit more. We must take the stakes. We gotta show the show. Unless you have another song, the only other song I wanted to sort of give a little bit of attention to in some level of detail is uh, the first single off the album, which was Face to Face. Like Secondhand Love, most of Face to Face is centered around the one chord. I remember a friend of mine at the time had heard the single on the radio before I did and told me he hated it because it just seemed so repetitive to him. He said, no, don't give it any time. But I couldn't have disagreed with him more. I love songs. Uh, I mean, this is not that this is a drone, 
But I love songs that drones are based, you know, the one chord type thing. I admit that like much of the album, I found it more musically interesting than lyrically in this case. But the lyrics like the repeated drum pattern by Simon Phillips, which is an overdub to Pete Townsend's programmed percussion. Uh, and that's where it becomes, goes through that, as I said before, that gated drum technology that Phil Collins had championed through the 80s. We've got to judge the judge. We've got to find the find. We've got to scheme the schemes. I want to know where do you stand on this lyrically? Because on the surface, it's about sticking it to the authority but and having the strength of your convictions uh, or with that rhythmic lyrical device. But yet Tanzend has just spent like a lifetime saying, don't bother rebelling. There's no point. And idealism, as I said, that 1986 interview, where he said the idealism of the 60s is based on fairly wonky and that's his word fairly wonky ideas on this song it almost sounds like he's saying no we have to stick it to the man we've got to judge the judge we've got to find the fines we've got to scheme the schemes we've got to do our thing and that's sticking it to the man i think in this instance it's where i would differentiate between townsend as an narrator and maybe jim as an narrator so this is like face to face is kind of the real me of white city where it's the early stages of jimmy the mod or jim here being in there kind of yeah fuck you rebellious the doctor don't understand me my mum don't understand me i'm going to take everyone on early on in any kind of narrative of the album I don't think this is Townsend speaking I think it's him talking through Jim and Jim's kind of attitude to everyone around him if you remember in the film itself this is one of the diegetic pieces this is Townsend and his band performing this at the swimming pool this is not something that's going on on the soundtrack while Jim is and and also in a way to me it seems like Jim is also the antithesis He, he what does he do he gets up every day he goes to the swimming pool, takes in a few laps. He does look like a serial killer, though. He, he, he does. Yeah, that's true. He does look like a serial killer. He may have been someone who had previously been uh, rebellious. Certainly, if he's the Jim of Quadrophenia, we know where he was. But here he is at whatever, in his mid-30s at this stage. He's divorced, living in a council estate. He's got mummy issues and he's got ex-wife issues. He's not rebelling against anything. He doesn't have the luxury of rebelling against anything. Maybe it's not Jim so much as the kind of insular kind of attitude of White City as an estate itself. You know, as, as someone who grew up on like an estate in South East London, there was always this kind of undercurrent of us and them. The police wouldn't visit. The, de- the, the Department of Work and Pensions were against you. This would especially have been the case with Thatcher as Prime Minister with how she considered places like this. So... I wonder maybe if White City is a character itself in the song and not maybe Jim in that case. Yeah, well, I guess there could be a very strong argument made for that because even though we we don't really see much of the estate, we tend to see... I mean, we get few shots and they're definitely trying to make it clear with the names of the streets uh, that it's part of the broken Commonwealth. But yeah, most of what we see is actually in the swimming pool or in Jim's memories in his mother's pub or Jim's memories of uh, Jim and Alice when things were good and then when things went wrong. But the idea of White City being the character, just like any city in a film, you know, like Manhattan's always used as a character in a, in many New York films. So it's it's possible. Maybe these are failed ideologies. Maybe, you know, yeah, let's, let's rebel or let's stand up for ourselves, just like you know, Jim does at the beginning of Quadrophenia. 
stands up for these ideologies. Or it could be because Tanzin singing it in the film is a concert performance. It could be like his his uh, his character who's so out of touch with what the people there are saying. Yep, comma, yes, uh, we must all together face the face. We must all together stand the strength of our convictions, which he never really did. Particularly because he's wearing a gold lame jacket at the time as well. <laughs> That's you true. know what I mean? It's like, it's, it feels very out of place to, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I was thinking as well, is this kind of Townsend's kind of little foray into the emerging sort of rap scene at the time because you have like the uh, the upright bass which become a really kind of popular thing in sample tip-hop later on. I saw a, a performance of him on, I forget the name, there was a German TV show in like the 80s where artists would perform. Rock Palast. Yeah, Rock Palast, that's it. And uh, he performs face-to-face and he has a whole like band with backing singers and he has two um, Afro-Caribbean girls actually performing the verses before Townsend's like chorus. It feels like this It might be not so much Townsend was thinking about any kind of contextual thing for the album, but him just genuinely trying new musical things to fit in with the trends of the time. Completely possible. Let's conclude this because we've been talking a long time, although admittedly not much of it about the album itself. We've been talking about everything peripheral, but that's okay. Do you have a final series of thoughts on White City or Townsend in any respect? I think um, this might not be the most of like auspicious thing that he's ever released, but I genuinely think it's one of the best. Um, I think as a solo album, it's fantastic. It's a really tight, concise collection of songs. I'm glad we spoke about the film first and dispensed with the kind of negativity of that and then moved on to the album because the album really is a cause for celebration. We have obviously our issues with it in terms of the context and some of the subtext that he he speaks about, but as a piece of work, I I really enjoy it and I definitely recommend it to anyone who hasn't got round to hearing it yet. And I imagine there's quite a few people who are fans of the Who who might not have heard this album. See, this is the weird thing, Charlie, because, I mean, I'm an old man and I remember when this album came out, and there was quite a lot of fuss about it. There was considerably more fuss in the mainstream media, to, at least at this end of the world, than Empty Glass or All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes. I mean, when they came out, there was some sort of record company push to make this album work. And uh, I remember it getting into the charts, and I remember seeing the film clip of Face to Face on the local TV music video clip shows. And I remember the songs, a couple of the songs being played on Top 40 radio. So there was a push and people knew this album at the time. But it does seem to me that no one seems to talk about it nowadays. I don't think that this album is remembered. And it's very bizarre because I'm not, I mean, look, I'm not saying that this was, you know, the biggest album of the 80s, far from it. But it was certainly his biggest solo album to date, at least over here. And I presume it was quite big in the UK and the US and anywhere else that, Townsend is considered uh, you know, or valued as a songwriter and maybe he's got himself to blame because the last whatever 20 years or, or more he's just put more time in doing greatest hits shows with the revived who I mean that's you know he and Roger Daltrey have just seen fit to just sort of go and uh, do their shows under the name of The Who rather than doing his own thing and maybe would still be talking about White City if uh, he'd kept on doing solo albums and just made the Who a one-off thing, but when push comes to shove, he wants to be remembered more for uh, for that than 
than his solo stuff. There are three things guaranteed in life. There's death, taxes and Pete Townsend sort of perennially monetizing Tommy and Quadrophenia. That seems to take up the most of his sort of efforts now, which is fine because, you know, if they're operas, there should be constant different iterations of them. But yeah, it does come at the expense of, of his solo career. I was born in the late 80s and I always get this perception that people have kind of been quite revisionist about what the 80s were like. Everyone thinks it's just synth pop boy george human lee and it is so much more than that and this is why stuff like this gets overlooked this is still a very 80s sounding album it's more 80s than empty glass or all the best cowboys have chinese eyes are so i think look empty glass sounds like an early 80s album and this really does sound like a mid 80s album it does make acknowledgement of the time and Tanzan quite wisely wanted to think well I'm not in the 60s anymore I'm not going to make a 60s or 70s sounding album I'm going to use modern technology what was then modern technology to make what I can to bring me up to date and that makes complete sense but it doesn't sound from a production perspective timeless but it does no. it does sound of its time but it's still a great collection of songs and we, one thing we sort of haven't spoken about I'll just quickly mention is that behind the production seat is Chris Thomas who you know, had a long pedigree and Chris Thomas is renowned and uh, he, like he was recording engineer and non-credited producer on Abbey Road and on the White Album on you know, Beatles solo I think probably more Paul McCartney in the 70s there's a ton of people um, I think in the early 80s he produced the first couple of pretend his albums. Chris Thomas was a big name and I, I, to be honest with you I think I far prefer the production values on those early Pretenders albums. They sound a lot more timeless than this album does from a production perspective but this does sound like a big mainstream big sounding album and he did a very good job in that regard. But I personally think that uh, more, maybe more than any other decade since the advent of, of rock and popular music that the 80s is the one where People are so caught up in particular trends, as you say, like the Phil Collins thing and the Simp thing, possibly. There's a lot more material from the 80s that hasn't aged as well as other decades. I don't mean that as a criticism, because how are you to know at the time? But I think people are so fixated on the technology and the new emerging kind of fads that they're not necessarily thinking about posterity. No one's ever recorded an album thinking, wow, this sounds really, really cool, but I have a feeling that 20 years from now, it's going to sound shit. It's yeah. <laughs> no one's ever done that, not to the best of my knowledge. Everyone's an expert in hindsight. And yeah. as I said, I don't think that this album is guilty of the most heinous 80s production not. crimes, not by a long shot, but it does sound of its time. Uh, if Had he made this set of songs in 2023, it would have sounded considerably different, I like to think. Anyway, look, as you say, people out there are probably thinking, we don't get it. Do you like this album or don't you? We both love this album. Life's too short to devote a podcast to an album that sounds shit. We both love this as a song piece of songwriting. We question some of Townsend's thinking, certainly film-wise. But this is a great set of songs. And if you've not heard it, if you're only familiar with Townsend through The Who, then search this album out streaming or go to a shop and buy a CD of it or a record of it. Um, it's really, really well worth your time.
Charlie, thank you so much for doing this. You are more than welcome, and it was an absolute pleasure. I don't know why we didn't do this album earlier, and to be honest with you, I don't know why I haven't had you on the show in seven years, because you are a perfect fit for this sort of show. I love your discussion. So Thank you, mate. We will not leave it another seven years for the next one. Uh, once again, Scott, if you're listening, McFicker, McFicker. Um, <laughs> so just quickly, if you want to just let people know how they can find you either on, you know, online in social media or if they want to listen to Stinking Paws how they can find that uh, yeah we're available from a social media perspective on Twitter and Facebook you can find our podcast on Spreaker but also the links will be posted for episodes on those social media accounts but a general Google search of the Stinking Paws Paws spelled P-A-U-S-E should should uh, prove successful in finding the show I think we've we've got lots of episodes recorded and coming up but also we have Real Britannia, which is part of the Stinking Board stable. And I'd, I'd just like to say that uh, Scott also talks on the Talking Pictures TV podcast and the excellent Rainbow Valley as well. Uh, it's a wonder he has time to go to work. I don't think he does. I think it's like Jim out of White City. Oh, <laughs> there you go. So he goes swimming every morning. I've had a really, really great time. I'll include links in the show notes. Quickly, what's coming up? I mean, I know that you guys do tend to record like about 10 or 15 episodes in advance of actually releasing them but do you know what Scott's planning to release next? We should have a episode about the Warriors coming up soon. The problem is is that we talk about current affairs when we record and then it sounds really out of date when when they're released so uh, don't be surprised in six months time if you find out that the Queen has died (laughs) from this (laughs) impulse. Oh god oh yeah I forgot about this so so you've already recorded that one have you? Yeah yeah celebratory. Did you watch both versions? Uh, no, I haven't actually watched The Warriors yet. I'm going to save it so it's quite fresh. Oh, before, oh you haven't, so you haven't recorded we review it. No, no, so, no, we've not recorded that yet. Obviously, things become slightly delayed over the kind of holiday periods, so um, I'm sure and, and we were on holiday for a while, Scott, Paul and I, in December, so um, we should get round to that as soon as possible. Excellent. But I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing you gents talk about The Warriors, a, a long-time favourite film of mine, and I'm sure some of the listeners as well. All right, well... Uh, once again any of you out there who've been listening this far through to the end of the show thank you so much thank you for keeping Love That Album in your podcast subscription feed I've not been consistent for the last few months and there may be a few hard times in the next few months but I'm going to try to get to some sort of regular schedule as much as possible I really 100% appreciate your support anyone out there who's still listening thus far to the show so I'm not even sure if I'm releasing this during January or sometime in February but um, uh, obviously by the time you're listening to this you'll know that you'll know the answer to that so the next show I think I'll just post that on the social media because I think I know what I'm doing but I need to just get back to the guests who um, I had originally booked for that but yeah I think I have an idea it's going to be a a revered Australian album from the 80s I'll confirm that in the coming weeks just check the Love It Up Facebook page once again look after each other be nice to each other as I keep saying the world's going through some scary times but give love and keep love between brothers and sisters and just really look after each other be nice all the best cheers
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.